Corner Fringe Ministries presents a 12-part series on the divine nature of God. Please enjoy the study. We are in part, part 10 of our divine nature of God study. Part 10. <laughs> and um, I would like to briefly recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. If you remember, we talked about the name of Yeshua and just how high and exalted this name really is, that it is a name above all names. There is no other name higher. And it is that this name, the name Yeshua, alone by which we must be saved. Amen? And according to the Apostle Paul, it was at this very name that every knee should bow in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue confess. And furthermore, I showed you that when Paul made this statement, he's actually quoting Scripture. He didn't contrive it on his own. He's actually quoting a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 45, where we find the prophet actually stating that it is to Yahweh, to the Lord God, to Yahweh that every knee was to bow and every tongue confess. And yet, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul reveals who Yeshua is by saying it is to Yeshua that every knee should bow and every tongue confess. But he doesn't stop there. He adds something very important right at the end. Every knee is to bow, every tongue is to confess that Yeshua is Kurios. What we translate in the English, Lord. Every knee is to bow, every tongue is to confess to Kurios. Now what's fascinating about this term, this is the very term used to translate the Tetragrammaton. The yod heh vav -Heh. When you take from, when you go from the Hebrew Scriptures, when the Jews went from the Hebrew Scriptures and translated the Tanakh into Greek, what we call the Greek Septuagint, the Hebrew Bible in Greek, they used kurios to translate the Tetragrammaton. And yet, we find this very word, kurios, being used of Yeshua in the New Testament. How fascinating is that? So with that said... I want to begin today by continuing to look at more evidence to show Yeshua as God, as Yahweh. And we're going to begin in the prophet Jeremiah. I suppose I should do this first. I want to add a little disclaimer here. Today's message is going to be a little bit different than my normal messages that I give in the sense of this is going to be rapid fire. All I'm going to do is start shelling out Scripture. We're going to play biblical ping pong. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, we're going to go to the New Testament, we're going to go back to the Old, we're going to go to the New. And you're going to see that they are perfectly united. And that the evidence that comes from within all testifies that Yeshua is God. Amen? Alright, so let's go to the prophet Jeremiah. We go to the 23rd chapter. And what we're going to find is that there's a deeply messianic prophecy foretelling what the Mashiach, to say, when I'm saying the anointed one, the Messiah, Intimate details are given, characteristics are given of him in this prophecy. You know, remember, there are different levels of prophecy regarding Yeshua. Some are very, very deeply mysterious. You would never see that this would be a messianic prophecy until Yeshua had come and fulfilled it. And then you can go back and say, ah, I see him in the pages now. 
There are other prophecies that are hidden in plain view. They're not quite as deep as mysterious, but they're not overt. And then you have overt prophecies that are staring you at the face. They're unambiguous. You can read them at face value. They tell you of the Messiah. This is one of those times. This prophecy in Jeremiah 23 is overt. There's no mystery here whatsoever. So with that said, let's continue in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Now right there, you know, you can ask 10 Jews out of 10 Jews. This is a messianic prophecy because it's talking about raising one to David. The Mashiach ben David, the son of David, the anointed son of David. This is a messianic prophecy. A branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper. A king is rising to his throne. And something we're told, a characteristic we're told about his kingship is that it will prosper. It is a kingdom that will never end. And execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Oh, this king's going to be a judge. And not just any judge, but he's going to execute righteousness. He is a righteous judge. Verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called. Before I show you this name, did you catch it? Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell in safely. This king that is coming is coming with salvation. He is going to save his people. And then we're given his name. The name is the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Zekenu, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the sacred name of the Holy God of Israel, the Mashiach, this is a messianic prophecy, his very name is Yahweh. I want you to think about this evidence. This is overt. Yeshua is called Yahweh. The testimony is clear. The prophets, they're all in agreement with what the apostles in the New Testament are talking about. These ridiculous claims that the apostles are making, such as Paul, saying that all are to confess Yeshua as Yahweh, these ridiculous statements, they're confirmed. It's confirmed in the Hebrew Bible. I want you to think about all the testimony that we have thus far. You go to Isaiah chapter 9, we find he is, the Mashiach is, wonderful counselor, mighty God. He's prince of peace. He's El Gibor. All these names describe him, and yet they're the very names of the Father. Go back two chapters before, Isaiah chapter 7. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And what do you call him? God with us. That's his name, Immanuel. Immanuel. And now we find the Mashiach is quite literally called Yahweh Zekenu, a name that only belongs to God and God alone. My point is this, the more we compile evidence of what the prophets have already spoken, what the prophets said would come, the more we realize that the Mashiach who was to come wasn't just a man. He was much more than that. All you need to do is read the New Testament. Learn of the wondrous miracles that Yeshua performed. Wonders that had never been done before. Wonders that had never even been heard of before. And do you know God is notorious for that very characteristic? God does things that no one has ever heard of before. No one has ever seen before. And yet Yeshua's ministry is inundated with that. He walks on water. Who's ever heard of that before? Right? He heals the blind. 
In John chapter 9, the blind man himself says, since the world began, has anyone ever heard of such a thing? John chapter 7, he's quoted, or there's a quote in there that said, no man ever spoke like this man. He's known for these things. Then if you look at the names by which he's called, you realize what Jeremiah realized. He, he's Yahweh. He's Yahweh Zikainu. Let me give you another example in our rapid-fire approach that alludes to Yeshua's deistic nature. And just so you know, I'm, I'm setting the stage here so that you'll understand when we get to the final point, it'll make perfect sense. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 6, Solomon says, Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. And I, I just like to say this, but what a Jewish way of teaching. This is so Jewish to take the same analogy and use it in different ways over and over and over again to prove one point. Yeshua taught like this. You can read Matthew 9. Paul talks like this. He teaches like this. Analogy after analogy. What is Solomon saying? He's telling of, remember your creator before you die. Okay? Before you die, before your pitcher is shattered at the fountain or your wheel's broken at the well, remember him. Going to verse 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Now, Solomon unlocks the mystery of what happens when we die. When man dies, he unlocks this mystery. And to truly understand what is happening at death here, I think it's important to understand the composition of man so that you can truly appreciate what Solomon is stating. If we go to Genesis 2-7, we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground <clears throat> and breathed into his nostrils his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so understand, we are dust and we are ruach. We are breath. You bring these two items, we are a composition. You bring these two items together and then you have a living being. Okay? So within these two passages, we're giving the beginning and the end. What happens at construction? What happens at destruction? All right? Now, getting to my point, if we fast forward to the New Testament, we find Stephen is literally being stoned to death for his testimony of Yeshua. Well, let's look at this, Acts 7.59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. There is an identification here between Yahweh, or Elohim, and Yeshua. And did you catch it? Who is Stephen calling on to receive his spirit? Yeshua. Go back to uh, Ecclesiastes 12. The spirit returns to God. And yet Stephen is calling on Yeshua, receive my spirit. And even if we just read this verse at face value, we would come to the same conclusion. Did you notice how Luke articulates this. He's so clever. He states, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. And then he quotes him, saying, Lord Yeshua. Read it again. He's calling on God, but then out of his own mouth was Lord Yeshua. He could have said, why, why didn't he phrase it this way? As Stephen was being stoned, he was calling on Yeshua, saying, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. Luke does this 
for our benefit. We are to catch these things. There are hints. Some are more overt than others. They're all over Scripture. There comes a point to where I just want to close this book, drop it down in front of you, and if you challenge whether Yeshua is God, read the book. It's evidence. It's, It's evidence throughout the pages. No matter how you look at it, no matter how you look at this verse, Yeshua is God. He's deity. Let me give you another example. Go to Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 4, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's testimony here is that he saw the king, Yahweh Zavaot. Yahweh Zavaot, the Lord of hosts. He saw it with his eyes. Fascinating when we fast forward to the New Testament and look at John's commentary on this very thing. We read in verse 37, But although he, Yeshua, had done so many signs before them, he did not, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, now this is going back to our passage, uh, chapter 6, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Yeshayahu said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. John tells us that the very one that Isaiah saw was none other than Yeshua, who Isaiah himself, the prophet, identifies as Yahweh. But John shows us the identification, and he says, Isaiah saw Yeshua. I would say there is some serious association here between Yahweh and Yeshua. Let's look at another example. Going to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, we read straight to the point. I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. So who is it here who searches the hearts and tests the minds? It is the Lord. It is Yahweh, the very God who made heaven and earth. And he goes on to say, as he's testing the hearts and the minds, warning them, hey, I will give you according to the fruit of your doings. According to your works, I will repay you. This is what he says. Now listen to this. As we go into Revelation chapter 2, we read, And and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God. Okay? Did you catch that? The words that are going to be spoken here are from the Son of God. 
who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, jumping down verse 21, and Yeshua gives a warning to this church. He says, I gave her time to repent of the sexual immorality. She did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Furthermore, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Literally, identically quoting Jeremiah 17 verbatim. That is amazing. And yet it is Yeshua stepping in and said, I am the one who searches the hearts and tests the minds, and I will be the one recording, uh, repaying you. Yet you go to Jeremiah, what does Jeremiah say? Yahweh searches the hearts and tests the minds. Let me give you another example. And for this example, I'm going to take you to the Psalms, specifically Psalm 78. Now, if you're not familiar with Psalm 78, it is a detailed account. It's actually a very, very insightful commentary on the Exodus, all right? A very insightful commentary on this, and I want to read this to you. Psalm 78, verse 14, we read, In the daytime also he, meaning God, led them with the cloud, and all the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. Okay, so we have, we have, we have, he's recounting here what happened in the wilderness. He actually, if you read the Exodus account, water is brought out of a rock for all of Israel to drink. This life, this sustenance had come out of a rock and thereby Israel was spared. So this imagery continues in verse 16. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High and the wilderness. Verse 18. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. And they said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Down to verse 34. When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. So interesting that the writer... The psalmist here commentates, uses the imagery of water being coming out of a rock, this imagery of what had happened, and that was giving Israel life and sustenance. But when Israel had come to their senses, had repented and come back, what was their confession? The imagery continues. Oh yeah, we know who God is. He is our rock. In other words, He's our rock. He's our provider, our sustenance, the giver of life. Now, I want to take you to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, because Paul does some very, he brings some very interesting, uh, interesting things to light here as he commentates himself on the Exodus account. And actually, if, if you were to put up the passage of, of, of um, Psalm 78 and you were to put that next to 1 Corinthians 10, you would see a lot of similarities. In other words, the evidence suggests that Paul's actually commentating on this commentary. You can see it. Um, so with that said, let's go to chapter 10, verse 1, and read Paul's commentary, and I'm going to tie this in. 
Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moshe in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and here we go, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Mashiach. This is Paul's commentary on the Exodus, and he's saying, listen, our fathers drank from that rock. Who was that rock? Who, the psalmist says that rock is God. Paul says that rock was Christ, was the Mashiach. It's amazing. Now, let's continue in Paul's discourse because he has more to say, more to associate between Yahweh and Yeshua. Verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up, to plays, actually quoting when they were at the golden calf. This is the time at the golden calf. And we continue to verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell, going to Numbers 25, the whole Balaam deal. And then verse 9, listen to this. Nor let us tempt Christ, Mashiach, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. So interesting that Paul states here that Israel, when they were in the wilderness, the one that they tempted was Christ, was the Mashiach. And it says, because of that, they were destroyed by serpents. I want to show you what the actual account records. I want to go back to Numbers 21. It reads this way. And the people spoke against God. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord, Yahweh, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. According to Numbers, the people tested Elohim, they tested Yahweh. And yet Paul, in his discourse, states that this very Yahweh is none other than Yeshua. Is it any wonder why Paul was beaten? Why he was stoned, why he was being kicked out of synagogues. It was because of his testimony. Crazy, ridiculous things that he would go on telling them. Hey, Yeshua, yeah, the one that was killed, oh yeah, he's the Messiah because he resurrected from the dead. Oh, more than that, he's the Son of God. That would get you stoned in the first century. In fact, that would probably get you stoned in some synagogues today. Let's look at another example. This one's very short, straightforward. Malachi 3.6 For I am Yahweh. I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Israel. I am Yahweh, I do not change. What does the writer of Hebrews state? Yeshua HaMashiach is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a parallel statement, saying the exact same thing. Psalm 23, David states, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Who restores David's soul? It is Yahweh. Who is David's shepherd? It is Yahweh. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
What does Yeshua claim? What is his testimony? He states, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. Peter, same confession. For you were like sheep going astray to his brothers in Israel, he's speaking. But you have now returned to the shepherd. And what? Overseer of your souls. The very thing David said, Yahweh restores my souls. What is Peter saying? It is Yeshua. Let's go to another psalm. And I want to warn you on, on this psalm, this is one of the most peculiar, not just psalms, but peculiar passages in all the scripture. And you'll understand why I'm saying this when we read this slowly. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God. Okay, look at the elements that are in this passage right off the bat. We have a throne, we're talking about God. And goes on to say, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. There is no doubt who we're talking about here. We're talking about God, his throne, his kingdom. It's forever and ever. And the kingdom in itself, he, he rules. It's his kingdom, okay? You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. What a bizarre statement. We have God, Psalm 45, verse 6, and then at the end of the passage, we have God, anointing God. How bizarre is that? I mean, if I didn't have the knowledge of Yeshua, and I'm going to show you what this means, but if I didn't have that, this passage would bewilder me because I have God being anointed by God. It almost seems like there are two gods. And yet we know the biblical testimony is there is no such thing as two gods. There is only one God. He is Achad. So let me take you to the writer of Hebrews. He gives a commentary on this psalm. And just with a few little words, he brings the psalm into full revelation, a total understanding. We go to Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son. Now understand the writer of Hebrews is recording dialogue between the Father and the Son. For what to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Now listen to his commentary. Just catch these first six words. But to the Son, he says, it's the Father speaking. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. There is no way around it. When you look at this passage, Yeshua is called God. It's in the Hebrew Scriptures. He is called God. I want to take you to the book of Revelation because we are going to find some very specific names by which Yeshua is called. Names that could not under any circumstance refer to anyone other than Yahweh. Yahweh alone. No one else. And what I want to do is I actually want to begin at the very first verse for, for a very important reason. We read this. The revelation of Yeshua HaMashiach. 
Five words. The first five words in this book, they tell a story within a story, if you will, within themselves. Because John is telling us what he's about to say to us is a revelation. It's an unfolding of who he is. That's what it is. It is a revelation of Yeshua. You're going to see things and hear things that you may have never heard before. So jumping ahead to verse 4, let's read. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now before we continue, I want to say a couple things. Number one, John is he's amazing at dramatic entrances. I mean, if you were just to read his first chapter in the books that he writes, they're intense, captivating, immediately dramatic. Go to John chapter 1, the gospel. When we were reading about his prologue, crazy things like the word was and is, or the, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. I mean, that's crazy. And they tell me that the, all of a sudden you got a word becoming flesh. And then furthermore, then you have no one's seen God at any time, but then you have the monogamous theos, the only unique begotten God. He's exegeting him. Bizarre statements. Really bizarre statements. And now here in Revelation, it states this in his greeting to them, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Is that me? And he states, this is a greeting. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, some of you might think he's talking about Yeshua. He is not. He's talking about the Father. This is a statement of the Father, and I will prove that to you. So the one he calls the Father, he calls him he who is, who was, and who is to come. And then you have this bizarre imagery, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This teaching is certainly not going to get into that, but it's almost like a, a nebulous, a mysterious term, seven spirits. What are these seven spirits? I'm not going to get into it, but suffice it to say that Yeshua possesses the seven spirits. And actually, if you go further in Revelation, when the lamb is looked at, the, it's, the lamb has seven eyes, and we're told that those are the seven spirits of God. So do with that what you will. But So we have the Father, grace to you and peace from the Father, from the seven spirits who are in the throne, and from Yeshua HaMashiach, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Who are we talking about here? Yeshua, right? They who pierced him. It was Yeshua who was pierced, all right? And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Look at this. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So here we see that Yeshua is called by the exact same name. He declares himself by the exact same name that we find in the prologue at the beginning that John calls the Father. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. <clears throat> now if we continue to read, we read this. Like I didn't have enough problems. <laughs> oh boy. Re Revelation 1.10. <clears throat> 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Fascinating. I just want to point this out. It has nothing to do with their day. He was in the, he was in the spirit on Shabbat. The Lord's day is the seventh day Sabbath. So here he is on the spirit, in the spirit on Shabbat. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea or Laodicea. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. These lampstands represent the seven churches that were just mentioned. <clears throat> we continue in verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Understand, we are talking about the Mashiach. We're talking about the Son of God here. And the very description is identical to that of the fathers. You go to Daniel chapter 7 and you read the ancient of days is being described, the father. He's being described and he has hair like pure wool. The very same imagery is being pulled in here of Yeshua. It's interesting how a son truly looks like his father. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like that of the sun shining in its strength. Verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. If you have any questions whether this is Yeshua or the Father, look at the next statement. I am he who lives and was dead. This cannot be debated. This passage is exclusive to Yeshua. And yet he's making the very same statements that are true of the Father. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and Omega. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. As I've said before, Yeshua has a lot of different names by which we call him by, by which we, are, which we find in Scripture. And with each name given, we are given an attribute or a characteristic of him, of who he is, a revelation of him. And now we learn in the book of Revelation that Yeshua is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. All of these names show his deistic eternal nature. Every one of them. It truly is a revelation of Yeshua HaMashiach. I want to show you another name by which he is called. And we're going to close with this. Revelation 19.15, it states, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh name, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a powerful name over and over and over again. As the further we get into this study, the more we see 
Yeshua really is Achad with his father, that he is God. Amen? We'll end here.